This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. My name is Ivoma Okoro. You are listening to Vega, a sci-fi venture podcast, and episode seven starts right now. We're back with a new theme song with the same story. You know the one about a bounty huntress of the fantasy future who's really freaking good at her job. When we last left off with the story, I mean, not the announcements in between, Vega had just woken up in the healing house to the news that her uncle had been murdered in a shocking terrorist attack. If you remember, Vega was there in her hometown when the attack went down and when everyone was running away, she was running in to the smoke and fire and that means that she is the only person who has any idea that this supposed suicide shooter might be a little more alive than the rest of the world seems to think he is. A lot more happened on this show before that attack went down but that's all the TLDR you're gonna get because Vega's about to do her now hold on hold on hold on wait 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 i know what you're thinking even before we get into all of this i can tell that you think you know where this is gonna go you think vega's gonna carry out some sort of personal vendetta against the terrorist who killed her uncle and i could see why you would think that considering where the story left off when she pretty much said those exact words but i mean you have to understand that could never happen because for vega to carry out a kill on someone who wasn't assigned to her by her bosses the prophets of the league council that would be to them and her entire country an act of rebellion akin to treason I once told you that spilling league secrets would have made Vega League enemy number 400,000, give or take. You want to know what using her elite government funded skills and resources to kill someone who hasn't been appointed to her by said elite government would have put her on their international hit list? At the top. Yeah. League enemy number one. And you know what the league does to its enemies. Nothing is scarier to the league, to the world, really, than when one of their own goes rogue. It's happened before, but that's another story for another day because it's definitely not happening now. I'm serious. It is not. Okay, whatever. I don't even care if you believe me because here is the thing. If you remember at the end of podcast episode number six, Vega declares that she's going to find the man who murdered her uncle and she declares this to a league prophet. Prophet Lila, to be exact. And Lila, blessed Lila, chalks that doozy of a statement up to a sudden bit of shock. Because heck, Lila was shocked. The whole nation was shocked. It's not like terrible things didn't happen in Patraxis. Terrible things happen everywhere people are. But it had been centuries since the world had seen an attack on Rx of this magnitude. Naturally, the whole thing became a bit of a national fixation. Now, can I tell you about a fantasy future cultural phenomenon that I am so glad we don't have yet? Virtual reality disaster rooms. I could explain, but uh, maybe it's better if I just show you. I'll do my best impression. They always start something like this. <laughs> 
the Sleazeball Ripoff's Virtual Reality Emporium, where I, Sleazeball Ripoff, take you, paying customer, through a moment-by-moment, fully immersive, I-can't-believe-it's-not-real simulation of the attack on Rx. Sensory plugins now available. For 40 additional units, you can feel the bullets whizzing by your cheeks. Not kidding. Ah, the deluxe package, the most expensive, um, comprehensive choice. Let me take you to where your journey begins, revealing the hidden dangers lurking just beneath the surface. Literally, the bombs are buried beneath the ground. Reports say there were three in total, here illuminated for your viewing ease. Notice something? These suckers are buried down here deep, and that's because they were designed to bring up a whole lot of earth with them creating the cover the shooter needed to carry out his nefarious deeds. Back at the surface, we see the proposed blast radii illuminated underfoot for your viewing ease. The Tyvex family, the faces of whom have been rendered as these stupid flesh-colored blobs at the request of, I mean, out of respect for the family, are standing directly above one of the bombs and of any single family in attendance, the Tyvexers would lose the most members this night. In fact, all the people standing in the illuminated zones would not survive the initial explosion. Fortunately, as you can see, the third blast radius is mostly taken up by that banquet table filled with sumptuous treats. That thing goes sky high though, smashing through the glass ceiling and raining down shimmering shards of glass. Beautifully rendered by our talented VFX team and very tragically causing devastating injuries to many more of these party guests. Despite all this amazing attention to detail, the most tragic part of this is that none of these poor folks were the real targets. Detailed reports speculate that the attacker's true motivation lay with the three siphon priests in attendance tonight, each of whom was carefully sought out and gunned down. Let's watch. You get the point. You can only stand so much of that thinly veiled glee masquerading as proper news before you start opting to get your coverage in aerial fonted bullet points. Rather than take you through one of those terribly inaccurate portrayals, I'll just tell you how they play. Three bombs go off. 129 people die. There's smoke. Mr. Ripoff turns on what he calls smoke vision, and you watch what looks like endgame Bruce Banner track down the three priests and shoot them. And the three priests were public figures, so there were less qualms about rendering them in vivid detail. And then you watch this monster man terrorist blow himself up. Unfortunately, predictably, these simulations were very popular, and despite them all being based on the most exclusive witness testimonies, not a single one of them were accurate because not a single one of them featured Vega, which means there was nothing in them of what Vega saw that night. Which means that right now, while Vega stands with her hands in her pockets on one of the big lawns of her family's grounds as she attends the biggest passing ceremony anybody has heard of in recent memory, she's pretty much the only one there busy trying to decide if letting the nation mourn her dead uncle is worth the risk of giving future sleazeballs a part two to the attack on Rx if or when the supposedly dead terrorist should make another guest appearance. But much as Vega would love to flip the switch on her emotions like some sort of automaton programmed only to protect 
A robot she is not. So as she stands there, listening to the sounds of so many people crying at once, some in these tones that she can only describe as low and, sorry, pitiful, and others with sounds escaping them as these high, unearthly canes, fully grown adults yelping into the air as though raw torment itself was squeezing these cries from their bones. She can't help the ramping up of her heart in the suddenly constricted space of her chest or the clammy moisture that's growing hot and uncomfortable under her arms, her body responding to some danger as of yet unclear, but I mean, not entirely unknown. Yeah, this is grief and this is intense. And this is the moment that Vega realizes something, something true about life that she had never known was true before. That one of the hardest things about losing someone you really love is watching other people you love go through losing them too. But listener, you tell me, what is worse, to know exactly how shattered a loved one is because they're falling apart right in front of you, or to be left to wonder because they are absolutely nowhere to be found? Hey, have you seen Milo? She's been asking that question all day, and the answer is always some version of the same. Oh, uh, I don't know. I haven't seen him. He's probably around here somewhere with Zaxby. Which is fine. That was fine. Milo could make himself scarce if he felt he needed to. His father, the murdered uncle of Vegas we've been talking about, the reason all these people are here, meant more to Milo than anyone else in the world meant to him. The last time that Vega and Milo had really talked over the link, Milo had been telling her that he'd officially decided he wanted to become a priest like his dad, which came as a surprise to approximately no one, by the way. No, no, it was the with Zaxby part of the answer to that question that was really putting the lock in Vega's jaw. Can we be petty for a second? You know mine, right? Good, okay, let's be petty. Vega had never met this Zaxby character before. From what she'd heard from Milo, I mean, he... He seemed nice, he seemed smart, and maybe kind of interesting, and it honestly was really flattering that a journalist of his caliber had chosen her family out of all the great families in the country to center his new work on the social standing of the great family in the modern era. She'd seen his picture before, because her mom had shown it to her many times in her blatant and shameless attempts at matchmaking, and he was cute, but... Vega didn't like him. In fact, she hated him because until this Zaxby dude came along, the only person Milo called his best friend in the world was his dear old cousin Vega. Now it was all Zaxby said this and Zaxby just showed me that. And oh, can you believe that one person could be so kind and commanding and cool and fiery? And doesn't he sound just great, Vega? Great! And you know what Milo actually said in that same conversation when he told her he wanted to be a priest? He said, <laughs> and this was the dagger too, he said he had also been strongly considering a career in journalism. Yo, Uncle Jackson had long ago forbidden anyone to tell Milo what Vega's real job was. So as far as he knew, Vega designed sky buses for the biggest aviation company in the world, a company called Convoy. But did Zaxby know how long Milo had been strongly considering a career in skycraft design before he came along? 
she would never admit that she was jealous, but she was incredibly jealous because she had never cared that Miley was only her dweebly little cousin. That kid had always been and would always be the most pure, big-hearted person she'd ever known, and she would have worn that best friend badge with pride for the rest of her days. She loved being his hero, so where the freaking heck was he right now? And why was he not here with her and the rest of his family so they could help him through, gosh, what had to be the, just the worst week of his entire existence. Why was he hiding out with some rando he barely even knew a year ago? But ah, uh, let's quit pretending Vega's not the master seeker in any game of hiding, shall we? She knows. She knows exactly where her cousin is right now. Or at least she has a very strong idea. And as the attention of the people in the crowd around Vega begins to shift and focus, on the ruminating hunter in their midst, the question we've really got to ask ourselves now is, if Vega knows where Milo is, who's really doing the hiding here? Oh, and I suppose we should also ask ourselves why the attention of the thousands of people standing around Vega just suddenly shifted and refocused directly on Vega as she was standing there, very silently minding her own business. Let's start with this one first. They're looking at her because it's her turn. Now, as the attention of the people around her had turned toward her, they had parted, clearing a way for her in the green grass. And the first thing that struck Vega in that moment was how the grass looked. The lawns here were usually well kept, but the grass here was longer, and though it was well into the day, still dewy. And so that grass was shimmering and possibly in the afternoon sun as she walked along it, and how shall I describe it? Something about the way the light was falling, the quality of it, cut straight through her. She walked the clear path into the circle, this circle in the crowd that Jackson's closest friends and family had formed around his ornate, elevated cryo-casket, and when Vega laid eyes on that, it became clear that the shimmering of the grass was nothing to the brilliance of that bare box. Onondaga was there. She was standing hand in hand with her mother, Vega's grandmother, Prestia, and their eyes lay on the man who stood nearest the casket, the second son, Galex. Vega connected eyes with her father as she stepped into the clearing. He was crying, and of course, he was crying. You didn't hear this before because your attention had been with me, but before Galex had called Vega's name, he himself had been reciting a prayer into the small microphone set up before that casket, and that microphone had been simultaneously recording and transmitting Galex's prayer into the casket for Jackson to hear, stitched together amongst the prayers of all his loved ones who would offer words that day, over and over until Saivo should raise Jackson to eternal peace, and also broadcasting Galex's voice out over the field so every ear and attendants could hear his words as clear as though he stood next to them. When Vega came into the clearing, Galex stepped away from the mic and wrapped himself around her, and somewhere deep in the dank compartment she was trying to lock her heart behind, she could feel something shatter. With a squeeze, Galex pulls away and regains his mother's other hand, and everybody in the clearing turns their attention to Vega, that microphone, and the shimmering glass box where her uncle lay.
Thick swaths of condensed air roll around inside the casket like blankets of fog, so that even though all Jackson's body is there, not all Jackson's body can be seen at one time. Little peaks of him come through here and there, but as Vega steps close, that foggy blanket rolls back for a moment from his face. He has no color. Or rather, his colors have been muted into one, blue. Like the corners of his casket, the tips of his eyelashes glitter with ice, but besides that, he could have been sleeping. Vega takes a breath and begins. So, I know this is supposed to be a prayer, but I wrote some words just for you. There's some last things that I wanted to say, and I realize me saying these things is pretty weird, and I think that'll be for a couple of reasons. The first is that it's not super obvious if you can hear me. You're dead. Your physical ears have stopped working, and your spirit is somewhere. And I'm not sure what you're up to there, but I don't exactly know if you're on patrol over your body, looking after the things that are happening to it. Even when you're alive, Thinking back to our whole relationship until this happened, I don't think I was ever really sure if you were hearing me. Like really hearing and understanding and accepting where I was coming from and the reasons I felt I needed to share the things I had to say. The second reason saying these things to you is weird is because you and I were so used to making as little ceremony as possible that it seems like I'm going against a lot of grain to do this. Birthdays and holidays weren't really occasions where we looked to depth and tried to make meaningful memories or fashion any sort of substantive words to share to one another. Uh, we didn't really try to honor one another while you were around. It makes sense then that one of our deaths wouldn't really be like that either. But for me, I never really liked that we never learned to honor each other that way. And when I got the news of what had happened to you, it felt wrong for me to just go on with my life like it was just another crazy week. Something big had changed. My uncle wasn't in the world anymore. I wanted that to mean something in my life when I looked back at it. I wanted to offer you something. I wanted to know that I honored you in my own way. And I hope that we do see each other again. And I hope that when we see each other, I can hear you say for yourself that you heard it all. Every word. I realized that as I was thinking through all of this that I must really believe that I will see you again or else it would have felt impossible for me to say this. It would be impossible for me to stand here and say these things if I didn't really believe that some future reunion between us is gonna happen. I'm sure you had your own fears about death, though we didn't really talk about those. I worry about dying. I must think about dying in some terrible way at least once a day before I've done so many of the things in life that I hope to do, before I've had years and years of happiness with a family of my own. But I will say, knowing that you're on the other side of this thing, when I really let myself think about it, dying seems a little less scary than it did to me before. It's comforting to know that you've gone before me and that maybe you are with some people you were really looking forward to seeing again too. I wish you and I had been better friends, though. I am sure I will wish this to the end of my days. I wish we had had more happy memories and knew each other better. 
I have very acute memories of going to your apartments and wanting so badly for you to ask me about the things I was up to so I could tell you my ideas and about all the things in life that were interesting and that inspired me. I wanted that so much. In my head, I understood that you probably did care about those things of me. You just couldn't express it, but it didn't stop me from getting into these patterns of frustration when you didn't show your care in any way that I could point to and say, see, this man sees me and cares about me. I think I would have been a lot kinder to myself if you had met these needs. Even back then, I knew you couldn't, but it didn't stop me from wanting that from you. And I think all the bitter words I had for you about your failings as a priest and an uncle came from this. So I, I just want to say for the record, you were a fine priest. I know you did your best. I, I know now that I said what I said about you, not because I knew better than you, though until very recently, maybe even just until I started writing these words, I foolishly thought I did have more knowledge than you about all this. But because I was hurt, because I felt rejected, I'm sorry for the ways that I hurt you with my words and for the shame that I caused. I was really wilded out, but so were you. Anyways, I hope you know that this even goes without saying, but all is forgiven. Man, this is so crazy to think about still. I can't believe this happened. I feel kind of numb. Anyway, I guess this is getting kind of long and rambly, and I'm sure I did this wrong, but I feel like if there's one piece of life advice that you would give me, it would have been to do my best. I can't tell if it's my imagination or a hundred conglomerate memories that are playing this in your voice in my head, but I feel like after such a long and wordy recitation of my thoughts and feelings and intentions, you probably sum this up by saying, well, do your best. Real simple, but honestly a good model to live by, so I mean to. I love you, Uncle Jax. I'll see you. Who's next? Mom? This episode is dedicated to my father, Ihiani Emmanuel Okoro, who passed away in December of 2019. The first thing I recorded when I got back to LA after his passing were the words that Vega just shared for her uncle Jackson. I'd originally written those words for my dad, but due to unfortunate circumstances, I never got the chance to read them to him. And I don't think it was an accident how the timing worked out and me needing words of lament to put into Vega's mouth last December. Anyway, that's all I really have to say about that. And that's it for episode seven. Episode 8 awaits you. 
In addition, if you're ready to consume the rest of the season at your complete leisure, you can head over to my website, evomatellstories.com, and pick up a copy of the Vega Storytelling Album, which reformats the content that spans episodes 7 through 13 into one smooth listening experience. And once we get further into the season, I really do think you're going to want that. I keep telling everybody who lets me talk to them about this that I think the first half of the season, a lot of the listeners found the storytelling style, the narrative style to be the thing they kept coming back for. Uh, but now that you've been there, you've done that, you're you're used to it. The second half of the season is where I think the characters and what's happening between them really become the glue that will keep you sticking with this content. So with the album, there's a lot less of me as a host talking about myself or things and a lot more of you just being able to engage with the story and these powerful character moments. Both are good, but I, I, I think the storytelling album is worth it. Uh, there's a lot more chance for you to enjoy not just the storytelling, but the story itself. If you're looking for ways to support the show, you can head over to my Patreon and find out more about how to do that there. You can find the show page uh, at Vega Podcast on Twitter and Instagram as well. Special thanks to Dusty Hall, who did all the music in this episode. To my Patreon producing partners, Caitlin Hines, Eric Stelflug, and Rob Rossi. And to my consulting producer, Chad Ellis. Lastly, you should register to vote. Request your mail-in ballot early. That mail-in stuff might be a huge disaster this year. So the best thing you can do is request your ballot early. Be safe out there. Wear your mask. I'll see you next time. The Fable and Folly Network where fiction producers flourish. It begins, as terrible things often do, with a knife. People of Herta, chosen children of the night, a lost soul has come to us. I'm not sure if I can do this. It's always better if you just do it quick. You came to St. Kilda to escape your past but the past isn't so easy to outrun. You always say you're changing, but underneath you're just the same. She was a child, Loki. You liar! Did you really believe this community would accept you? I think you're meant to be here. A little bird told me that you're a liar. All of this, it comes with a cost, Loki. Did you really believe you could find redemption? The time for excuses is over. The Secret of St. Kilda. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to season one now, and remember, there is no change without sacrifice. <laughs>